If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 3. I know the slide is, is going to say James, and we are, we're going to be looking at James today, but we're going to begin today in 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to use that kind of as an introduction because today we're going to be talking about wisdom. And James, if we just start in James, James doesn't really give us a good definition of what wisdom is. He just assumes that we know what wisdom is, and so he tells us how to go about getting it or the right motivations, how to ask for it. But I want us to kind of first understand what wisdom is, and so we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 3. If you had one wish, what would you wish for? This is a question that we all love to think about as children and I mean, let's be honest, even as adults, maybe I'm the only one. I'm sure we've all fantasized about finding a genie in a bottle and being granted wishes, maybe like Aladdin. And of course, wishing for more wishes is not allowed, right? You only get one or three or two, whatever, whatever the small number is. I hear my kids talk about this all the time. The holidays are approaching. I mean, they're not really, but we're being told that the holidays are approaching. Everyone around us is now looking at the holidays. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts box came in this morning with Christmas themes on it, you know. Um, So I hear my kids thinking and talking about what they might want for Christmas. They say things like, if I could only have one thing, Dad, it would be this. Or, Or I want this one thing more than anything else, right? We're told of a similar account about this that actually took place in the Old Testament. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, which we're about to read, King David is dead. His son Solomon has taken the throne. And Solomon, by his own admission, was just a child. Perhaps some scholars think even as young as 12 years old. The king of Israel. And God comes to Solomon at the beginning of his reign and he asks him, what would you like me to give you? And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Solomon asks for wisdom. So today we're going to see what James says about wisdom, but James doesn't really define what wisdom is. So we're going to look at the story of Solomon to hopefully get our minds around, okay, what is wisdom? And then we can talk about, okay, how do we ask God for it? What does it mean to ask God for wisdom? So, starting in 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 3. We're going to start there. Let's read 1 Kings 3, 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. 
And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this, And have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Now, how many of us in that situation would ask for that, for wisdom? I know what I would ask for. If I was 12 years old and king of Israel, I'd ask for a bigger army. I'd ask for more riches. I'd ask for a bigger palace or more territory, right? Those are concerns I would have, and I'd probably do the same thing as a 35-year-old. It doesn't matter if I'm 12 or 35. I want a bigger army. I want more stuff. I want more land if I'm king, right? But here we see the humility and dependence that Solomon has upon the Lord. Look at verse 6. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Solomon recognizes and proclaims God's love and faithfulness. Verse 7. Now, O Lord, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. He sees himself as undeserving of his position. There is no sense of entitlement as though he deserves to be king. No, he sees himself as weak, inexperienced, and unable to rule effectively without God's help. Verse 8, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted. Solomon, even as a child, sees the great task before him. He recognizes that ruling over God's people will require more than what he has on his own. All of this shows what kind of heart pleases the Lord. It's a heart that is marked by humility and dependence. You know, in our day, we love to hold up leaders who are self-assured, who exude confidence and vision and strong leadership, and there is a place for those things. I am not saying that those things are not necessary for leadership, but they need to find their proper place under the umbrella of a humble dependence upon God. And then in verse 9, Solomon asks for an understanding mind to govern your people so that he may discern what is good and evil. In verse 10, God responds, Because you have asked this, have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. 
this is wisdom. The ability to discern good from evil, right from wrong, and then to take action. No matter how we define wisdom, at the root of it is this. It's a moral compass that's been calibrated to the heart of God. It is looking at a situation and being able to discern what direction to go based on the laws, examples, and principles of God's Word, and then to move in that direction in faith. To state it more generally, wisdom is living God's way in God's world. Wisdom is living God's way in God's world. Now, notice how I said that. I did not say wisdom is the ability to live God's way in God's world. All Christians have the ability to live wisely, but there are many times we don't actually take steps of wisdom. But it's the actual living, the the real action that will determine whether true wisdom is present. Solomon asked for wisdom, but why? So that he could faithfully lead God's people. Wisdom is not some ivory tower ability to step far off from something and make moral judgments about it. No, wisdom comes to fruition in faithful obedience and action that reflects the heart of God. So that's wisdom, living God's way, living God's way in God's world. Now, we can go to the New Testament, to James chapter 1. If you want to flip over there to James chapter 1, we'll spend the rest of our time in James. We'll refer back to Solomon at different times because we're going to see some parallels here between what we saw in Solomon and how he asked for wisdom and how, what James tells us and how we should ask for wisdom. But today we're going to see what James says about wisdom, and my hope is that we will see that God gives wisdom to those who ask for it in faith. That's my proposition. God gives wisdom to those who ask for it in faith. That's the point of the sermon. So read with me in James chapter 1, starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The first thing we need to recognize is this. How is this passage connected with the passage right before it? Now look back up in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then the very next verse, if any of you, what, lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So it's not like our passage is totally disconnected from what came before it, right? For James, there's a direct connection between Christian maturity, which we saw last week, and living with wisdom. James wants his readers to grow in steadfastness, which leads to full Christian maturity so that they would be complete, lacking in no good spiritual quality. But then, it's almost like he assumes 
that they're going to be lacking in something, namely wisdom. Of all the qualities to bring up, he picks wisdom. That's probably important for us. The Christians James was writing to were probably no different than Christians today. Most of us, I think, would probably say that we don't have the wisdom we would like to have, especially in the midst of trials, which is the context that James is writing about. He's still trying to help his readers find joy in the midst of trials. And the ability to do that has everything to do with wisdom. What does he say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So what do we ask for? We ask for wisdom. But why don't we ask for wisdom? I mean, James goes out of his way to tell them, you've got to ask for wisdom. This is probably because Christians many times, or just people, are not prone to ask God for wisdom. So why don't we? Solomon asked for it. James tells us to ask for it. Now, I have no doubt that some of us do ask for wisdom and have asked for wisdom, but I think we would all say that we probably don't desire it as much as we should. Now, why is that? I think there's at least two reasons. First, we think we are already wise enough. Now, this assumption, thinking about my own life here, this assumption seems to take effect really, seems to start in our teenage years. We become less dependent upon our parents. We start to live more on our own. We begin to understand things that once seemed distant or mysterious. We start thinking independently, forming our own opinions about things. And this is all good. This is all part of what it means to grow up. But if we are not careful, we begin to think that the ability to care and think for ourselves is the same thing as wisdom. We begin to assume that our perceptions are the correct ones. We start to develop our own morality and set of values that may or may not correspond with godly principles. We develop patterns and habits that eventually form our character. And in all of this, the assumption is that we have all we need to live within ourselves. We assume we are wise without really giving it much thought. After all, things are going basically well for us. Maybe the circumstances of our lives are not too stressful. We're not doing anything really wrong, at least compared to others, and we're all generally happy with life. If this is how we think about our lives, why would we ever ask for wisdom? We would just assume that we can figure things out for ourselves. We don't see our need for wisdom. I can live God's way in God's world without really thinking much about it because things generally seem to be going well for me. But what does the book of Proverbs say about those who assume they are sufficiently wise? Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The foolish man has more hope than a man who thinks he is wise but is not. So the first reason we don't ask for wisdom is probably because we think we are sufficiently wise already. And the second reason we don't ask for wisdom is because we don't see God as the source of all wisdom. Remember Solomon. 
He understood God's faithfulness. He understood he did not have what it took to lead God's people. He knew that what he needed, only God could supply. So the reason we don't ask for wisdom is because we don't see God as the fountain of all wisdom. We don't meditate on His character and attributes. We don't meditate on His works or His creation. We don't meditate on His Word. And because of this, we don't ask Him for what we need to live with wisdom in this world. Psalm 199 verse, I'm sorry, Psalm 119 verse 99 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. Are his testimonies your meditation? If they're not, then you're not going to see God as the source or the fountain of all wisdom. We would never ask God for wisdom if we don't think that he actually has the wisdom that we need. But what we must understand is that asking God for wisdom is an act of humble dependence and worship. This is an act of worship. It is a declaration of our dependence. When we ask God for wisdom, we are admitting that we lack wisdom. We're admitting that we need Him and that He has what we need. We see this in our everyday human experience as well. If you have children or if you've ever been around children, you know that they ask for things all the time. And implicit in the asking is the recognition that they need help. They know they lack ability or skill or experience. They recognize that their parents are the ones they need, so they ask. In fact, that is, this is the human experience that Jesus points to to explain to us the importance of asking God for anything. In Matthew 7, verse 7, Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good, give good things to those who ask him? If you're here and you're a parent and your child asks you for some bread... You ever going to give him a rock instead? If he asks for fish, are you going to give him a snake? No, of course not. We know how to meet the needs of our kids, right? And if we know how to do that, and we are wicked, selfish sinners, then how much more does God know how to meet our needs? He is not a weak, selfish sinner. He is infinitely wise. He is perfect. He knows exactly how to meet every one of our needs. That's why we ask. Asking God for wisdom is an act of humble dependence and worship. 
asking God for wisdom does not bother God. Unlike human parents, me, God never gets annoyed with us. In fact, seeking God as the source of all wisdom is, like we said, worship. It's in our receiving from God an enjoyment in Him that He is most rightly known and exalted. When we go to God for wisdom and He provides that wisdom, we are then turned to Him and we worship Him for His goodness and His love and His mercy and His favor that He has shown us. It's worship. So today, we need to examine ourselves. Do you regularly ask God for wisdom? Do you see Him as the source and fountain of all wisdom? Or do you just assume that you can figure your life out on your own? If that's your assumption, then when the trials come, who do you think you're going to turn to? It won't be God. It'll be yourself. You might give lip service to God. But deep down, you will approach your trial in your own strength, assuming you're able to sustain yourself through it. So first, we see that we are to ask for wisdom. But James doesn't just command us to ask for wisdom. He doesn't just say, ask God for wisdom and then move on to something else. No, he gives a reason for asking. He tells us why. Why should we ask God for wisdom? Because for... He gives it generously to all without reproach. So why do we ask? Because God gives it generously. This word generously carries the meaning of singleness of heart, unconditionality, or without bargaining. Okay, this is what James means. All we have to do is ask for it. God does not require anything else from us. He's not waiting for us to get our act together before giving us wisdom. He doesn't base his generosity on whether we deserve it or not. Of course we don't deserve it. We don't deserve any of God's good gifts, but he gives them to us generously anyway. We also see he gives wisdom without reproach. What does that mean? Reproach means to upbraid or severely reprimand. This means that when God gives wisdom, it doesn't come attached with a lecture about how unwise we've been up to that point. Have you ever asked God for wisdom after making several unwise decisions? God doesn't make us feel small or ashamed for asking for help. He does not favor one person over another. He does not intentionally withhold wisdom from us in order to teach us a lesson. No, He continually gives and gives to those who ask. He is a perfect Father. And why else are we told to ask for wisdom? We're told because it will be given to us. Here is perhaps the greatest promise in this passage. When we ask, we will receive it. We can ask for wisdom with confidence, knowing that God will meet our request. What a precious promise for us 
especially those of us who maybe right now are in the midst of a trial or a difficult decision or uncertainty about the future. We don't know which way to go or what decision to make. We can rest assured that God will give us what we need to rightly discern truth from error and right from wrong. He will not let his children wander around aimlessly when they come to him for help. So here in the second point, James is telling us more than how to get wisdom. He does not view God as a cosmic Santa Claus in the sky who brings gifts to people that he doesn't really know. Here, James is telling us to bank on the character of God. He's our perfect Father. He gives generously. We are, meant to, we are not meant to only use God for His gifts, but after we have received them, to turn to Him and marvel at His generosity. James is saying, look at the generosity of God. He will give you wisdom. Ask because He gives generously to all without reproach. But there is more we need to know about this asking. James goes on to distinguish between two kinds of asking. It is possible to ask in faith and to ask in doubt. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this description of the doubting man, it's pretty devastating to hear. It's clear that this doubting is the result of a spiritual condition of disbelief. To doubt God means that we do not take Him at His word. We doubt His ability to be able to help us, or we doubt His trustworthiness. The doubting man does not trust in the character, the example, or the promises of God. Now, this doubting does not mean that we have questions about our circumstances, or that we are confused, or that we are hurt, or that, we, or that our faith is weak. No, like we saw before, God is our Father, and He knows our weaknesses and frailties and our sinful tendencies. For James, in this passage, doubting God means that our trust in Him and our allegiance to Him is divided. The doubting man is not committed to God. James goes on to tell us four things about this doubting man. First, he is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, if you remember in last week's passage, we we talked about the steadfast man. If you remember the plant analogy I used that I stole from Kyle, who stole it from Jesus, you know that the steadfast man is the one whose roots have sunk down deep into the rich soil of God's character and promises. Even in the midst of trial, he is able to remain steadfast and secure because he knows that God is in control and is at work in the midst of his trial. But what's the opposite of a tree planted firmly in the ground? Well, a good analogy would be a wave being driven and tossed by the wind. 
The doubting man is one who is mastered by every bit of bad news. Every trial exposes his insecurities. Instead of finding hope and joy in the midst of it, his heart is full of panic and desperation. He runs from one thing to another to find joy or relief. His heart is never fully satisfied because his roots have nothing to dig into. The doubting man is the same man that Jesus talks about in his parable of the sower when the seed is sown on rocky ground. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 13 about the the seed that's sown on rocky ground. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the doubting man. His heart is full of unbelief. He may have even called himself a Christian at some point, but when the trial comes, his heart is exposed for what is really inside, and he falls away. Have you ever known someone like this? I have. It's a sad thing to see. I remember growing up in my church as a child, and we would hold these revival services. This is where many new people would come to hear a guest preacher. We would usually go out weeks in advance and invite people to church and give out flyers and and put, put the word out that we're having a revival service. People that would never come to our church any other time, maybe they would show up for a revival service because we're going to invite a guest preacher, or maybe even, if we had enough money, a traveling evangelist. We would pay you know, someone who specializes in revival services to come and preach at our church. And many people would come, and they would walk the aisle at the end of the service, and they would pray the sinner's prayer. I've seen many people as a child do this. Some of them, my, my own aunts and uncles, family members. And maybe just maybe after that, they would come to church for a while, and they would show great interest and excitement for the things of God. But over time, we would see them less and less. And growing up in a small town, it was just a matter of time before I would find out that, from what I could tell, they had no more concern for Christ or His church. What at one time seemed so genuine turned out to have very little substance. I knew other kids my own age to do the same. They would go off to a youth retreat or a camp and come back, and they would talk about Jesus and how they would just be on fire for the Lord, and then over time, it would dissipate. It happened to me several times as well. This is a sad thing to see. This is this is what happen when, happens when there's no root, when there's no soil for the roots to dig down into the seed that is sown on rocky ground. That's the doubting man. And second, we're told that the doubting man will not receive anything from the Lord. But why won't he receive anything from the Lord? Is it because his faith is weak or because he's confused or he's a new immature believer? No. He won't receive anything from the Lord because his allegiance to the Lord is divided. 
His love for God is not genuine. His prayers to God do not come from a humble reliance on the goodness and sovereignty of God. They come from a heart that's just giving God a try. Have you ever seen this bumper sticker, Try Jesus? Still see it around sometimes. Try Jesus. That's all it says. Try Jesus. That's what the doubting man reminds me of. He's willing to throw up a couple prayers to see what God can do for him. He's in the fitting room of spiritual outfits. He's putting God on to see how he looks and feels. He's looking in the mirror. But as soon as things get tough, it'll be time to change his clothes. He's a fair-weather fan. He, hopes, he hops on the bandwagon of whatever team is on top that season, but when his team starts losing, he no longer wants to be identified with them, so he's off looking for a different team. The doubting man is walking, this is my favorite analogy, he's walking through the spiritual mall food court, and all the workers are out in front of their spiritual restaurants handing out samples, right? I love this. Getting the samples. The doubting man might decide to give Christianity a try. If he likes the taste, maybe he'll spend $8.99 on an entree. But as soon as more sacrifice is called for, as soon as things get tough, it'll be time to move on down the line. This is the culture we live in, by the way. This is the way most people in our culture Think about spirituality. God, however He is defined, is something to be tried on. But when He fails to live up to our expectations, we will move on to something else, something more domesticated and eventually something more like me. That's a heart that is divided. That's the double-minded man. That's the doubting man. But even that's not all James tells us about the doubting man. Third, we see that the doubting man is a double-minded man. Now, this word double-minded only appears in the New Testament right here. Some people think James just made it up. He just kind of put two words together to make up this word that he uses. But it's translated double-minded, double-souled is another way to say it. To doubt God means that we are hoping in something other than God in the midst of our trial. Again, we're reminded of Jesus' words when he speaks about what it means to serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus was getting at in that passage. It's the same idea here. You cannot serve two masters. Your soul cannot be wholly devoted to God and wholly devoted to something else. The double-souled man is not genuinely committed to God's ways. He's committed to himself and his own short-sighted well-being. He is a hypocrite at heart. And fourth, the doubting man is unstable in all his ways. He cannot stand up under trial or suffering. He is unstable. Now, let's think about this instability for a minute. This hit me this week as I was thinking about what it means to be unstable. Does this only show up, this instability, does this only show up in our lives when times get tough? Now, that that seems to be the context that James has in mind here. He's talking about how to persevere in the midst of trial. 
But what about at other times? Does that mean that the doubting man is truly stable at other times? I would argue no. He might appear stable at first glance, but in fact, it has been my experience that this instability shows up in subtle ways, even in the absence of a great trial. What am I talking about? I think one of the hardest experiences of life is not necessarily when a a new great trial or difficult circumstance comes our way. Most of the time, people struggle with the seeming monotony of life. I know this has been the case for me. Have you ever experienced this? Waking up every day, going to the same job, performing the same tasks, seeing the same people, having the same conversations, dealing with the same problems, and over and over the days go by. And one of the hardest things to see, especially as I'm getting older, is time passing by quickly. You feel like you're missing out maybe on something bigger. You start to wonder if there's something bigger or more important that you're supposed to be doing. And so many people, to escape the monotony of life, turn to all kinds of things to spice it up. Maybe we love the thrill of having something new, so we fill our lives with material possessions. Maybe we find a new, exciting relationship. Maybe we're always looking for the new, perfect job. Maybe we're always looking to move somewhere better or have some new, exciting experience. But at the root of this, We are not content with where we are or who we are. We're like a wave, driven and tossed by the sea. There isn't an isolated trial exposing our doubting. Every day is a trial. And every day we are looking for something other than Christ to hold on to. See, the fact is we all have these same tendencies as, as the doubting man. Now, I'm not saying that none of us have genuine faith. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that in the battle against our flesh, we are still prone to be double-souled. Where are your roots finding their source of nourishment? I mean, really ask yourself that question. Is Christ your greatest hope and source of comfort? Or are you just looking forward to some future external circumstance where you can finally have all you want, the perfect situation, that perfect house or family or job or whatever it is. Maybe you're here and you're experiencing a life-altering trial. Maybe you are in the midst of something intense and out of the ordinary. Maybe you received devastating news of some kind or your life is in crisis somehow. Where are you going to turn? Where are your inner resources? Are you going to turn to some external possession What if your circumstances take months or years to change, or what if things never change? Please know that you really can thrive and grow and experience true joy in the midst of any trial, but it's going to take wisdom. So I'm so thankful that God promises to give wisdom to anyone who asks for it in faith, and it's the man of faith. So we talked about the doubting man, now let's talk about the man of faith. It's the man of faith who gets wisdom. Look at the beginning of verse 6 again. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's all we're told about the man of faith. 
Just ask in faith, right? It's easy. James doesn't go on to describe him in greater detail like he does the man of doubting. He just assumes his readers will know what it means to ask in faith. To ask in faith means it's a request backed by genuine trust in God's character, purpose, and promises. Now, no one does this perfectly. God's not saying that we have to ask perfectly here. Our faith may be immature and weak, but that doesn't mean it's not real faith. When the faithful man asks God for wisdom, he does so because he truly recognizes his own need for it. He recognizes that God is the only one who can meet that need. He's not just trying God on to see if he works for him. He has experienced God's goodness and knows that without him, he will not experience the joy that his soul longs for. So he asks for wisdom. But we must not talk about faith without talking about the object of our faith. When Christians talk about faith, we're not talking about blind faith. We are forced to ask the question, faith in what? Faith in whom? Our faith must have an object. Look ahead in James. We're going to skip ahead in the book of James real quick to chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2 says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see that the object, what the object of our faith should be. It's the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord of glory. Remember what James has already told us. We ask God for wisdom because he gives it generously to anyone who asks. It's in the person and work of Jesus that we see the generosity of God in full display. Is there anything more generous than what we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. We see the generosity of God first in Jesus even coming to earth. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, In his humble estate, he lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. And how did this benefit Jesus? What benefit did this give Christ to to come to earth? What was in it for him? (laughs) Nothing. He was already perfectly glorious, perfectly sinful or sinless, perfectly powerful, perfectly holy. Jesus was not lacking in any good spiritual quality. He did not need to come to earth and live a sinless life, but he did. He did it because our God is a God of generous mercy. And not only that, Jesus died a horrific death. He suffered torture, and he was crucified under the Roman government. That actually happened. It's a historical fact. He suffered immense physical pain and even greater spiritual pain as he bore the punishment for the sins of his people. And then what happened? Oh, I'm sorry. And when that happened, his father turned his face away 
And for the first time in all eternity, Jesus was forsaken. He was the guilty one because our sin was placed on Him. And why did He do this? Because He needed to? No. Because our God is a God of generous love. He's so generous. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. And when He rose, He proved that He really is the Son of God. He really does have power over death. And He really will raise us up with Him in the last day. And why did He do this? Because our God is a God of generous power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now in us. And now, 2,000 years later, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in the finished work of Christ becomes a true child of God. Our sins can be forgiven. Our eternal future can be securely prepared for us in heaven. And the greatest gift of all is that we get not only God's good gifts like wisdom, but we get God Himself. He is our Father. And why? Is it because this benefits God in some way? No. It's because our God is a God of generous grace. He's so generous to us. Church, if you remember nothing else from today, remember this. Meditate on this. Our God is a generous God. His love His mercy, His power, and His grace are overflowing to us today. He longs to bless His people abundantly with wisdom. He wants us to be able to live steadfastly and securely in our new identity in Christ, whether you're going through a great trial or whether you're going through the everyday monotony of life. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why would we seek for this wisdom anywhere else? Why would we neglect such a storehouse of eternal wisdom? Let's be a church that regularly asks God for wisdom. Ask today. Don't wait. Remember God's faithfulness to you. Remember how He's demonstrated that faithfulness in Christ. Repent of your doubt. Ask God to reveal you ways that you seek for wisdom in yourself or other means. And then step out in faithful obedience to God's direction. Because God gives wisdom to those who ask for it in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be obedient to your word. So now we ask for wisdom. We ask as a, as a congregation. We ask as individual Christians. We ask as families. Please, God, give us wisdom. We confess that we don't know how to live in this world rightly many times. We confess that we are proud and arrogant. and Oftentimes we think we know how to live when we actually don't. So, Father, we need wisdom. 
we lack wisdom. And we see you as the fountain and the source of all wisdom. We see your kindness and your generosity on display in the gospel. And Lord, we long to live in communion with you, our heavenly Father. And we long to live according to your ways in your world. Help us, God, to live your way in your world. Pray for wisdom, and we look forward to enjoying the wisdom that you provide and ultimately enjoying you. In Jesus' name, amen.